Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clennon. And you're listening to Reflections by Spectacles. Today we're going to be talking about an insight that Harry wrote on the Supreme Court, its lack of democratic accountability and its immense power and sort of the danger that that has created for the health of American democracy. So, Harry, first question that I think we want to talk about is you talk about the political nature of the Supreme Court and how that's sort of been around forever. And you start, obviously, at the beginning of the court's history with or close to the beginning of the court's history with Chief Justice John Marshall, his ruling in Marbury versus Madison, which basically awarded the court with judicial the power for judicial review. And you said that that was essentially a political decision to award the court with that power. Could you just explain a little bit more on on what you mean about how is that? How is that political? Sure. So what I didn't really have room for in my article was a a little bit more of a discussion of sort of the exact circumstances of the case of Marbury versus Madison. And basically how, how that went down was in the aftermath of the election of 1800, John Adams was not reelected and Thomas Thomas Jefferson was elected president. And John Adams, he appointed a bunch of officials, including this guy Marbury, basically on the eve of Jefferson's inauguration. And Jefferson was like, well, hell no, you can't have these guys. I'm going to deny them their employment. And so they took a case to the Supreme Court. And Marshall basically, with the majority of the court, ruled that the court did not have the constitutional power to provide those appointees with their offices. And the tricky thing is that in ruling that the court did not have the power to, constitutional power, to give those appointees their their offices, he established the court's ability to say what is and is not constitutional with binding legal authority, which is what I talk about as the process of judicial review. Right. So because the court started out as the weakest branch, you can read the Federalist Papers. Hamilton says the court is the weakest branch. It's very explicit. Right. So it expanded its power. So in that sense, I would say it's political. Also in the book, which I um, sort of drew a lot of my argument for this article on and is cited in the show note. The the author of this book, The Supreme Court and Constitutional Democracy, John Agresto, basically talks about how Marshall also doesn't use perhaps the best arguments as to why there should be judicial review, because those best arguments might open the door to certain limitations on judicial reviews, checks and balances, limitations on judicial mm. review. So one can maybe surmise that he consciously pick the argument that would give the court the most power, the most uncontested power. So in, in that sense, I think you can say it's political. Uh, the other thing I would say is, is that, and I, and I say this in, in the article, the American democracy needs something like judicial review. And I would say it needs judicial review. Judicial review is probably the, right, you have to have people who can be umpires, referees over these sort of constitutional legal disputes. So in that sense, you know, it's not, you know, an, an unadulterated act of politics. People who are trained and don't have immediate electoral incentives to say one way or another. Right, exactly. Of course, they might be political because they have certain personal biases, but they don't have to perform to get reelected certain things. Right, right, right. That's a very good point. So it's not an unadulterated political act, right? It's not purely, it wasn't purely political, but I think there are political undertones to it that suggest, and this is, and this is, you know, this goes to sort of what 
you know, the founders were pretty clear about. They expected to be the case in the American Constitution was that there would be checks and balances and that each branch would try to encroach on other branches for its own ends to increase its own power right. vis-a-vis the other branches. And I think you just see that that is a the, the, the Marbury v. Madison case is a good example of that. And I think as well, sort of even if you imagine that the actors on the court are totally impartial and that they have no intention of playing politics, the... F- role of the court is fundamentally political because no one has an agreed upon precise view of the constitution so the through line between their judgment and what is actually in the constitution may not always be clear to people like you and me especially because there's 200 actually 200 plus years of precedent because they go back to things i think i think i could be wrong things like english common law um and stuff like that which predates the american republic and not only you know is it perceived to be political but i think one thing that's important to touch on is we talked about this in the first episode of our bird's eye myth and politics series, which if you haven't listened to, you should. We just released the follow-up yesterday, which is also worth listening to if you haven't. But we talked in that first episode of the myth and politics series about how people frequently treat the constitution or the founders as though it or they represent some single monolithic thought, Mm -hmm. when in reality there were so many disagreements between those people who wrote the constitution and signed the constitution and sure there were some compromises in it that's a frequent talking point is that the constitution is a document of compromise between these disagreements but there are also some issues where no compromise was made and instead things were left either open-ended or completely contradictory Mm -hmm. because the idea was basically we can't settle this now and people in the future will figure it out So the idea that you can have experts who know what the Constitution is trying to say is mistaken because the Constitution is itself a political document full of instances in which political judgment calls are called for. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Agresto makes a sort of intricate and really fascinating argument about the tensions between democracy and the Constitution, that the Constitution sort of binds and guides us in certain ways in the future, but that there also is this sort of, you know, we have this democratic will that should, you know, and that the, the governing principle of American democracy is majoritarian, right? What the majority of the people want should be the prevailing sentiment in the legislature and the executive, those kinds of things, right? That Again, in a qualified way, but that should be the, that that should be the prevailing sentiment. So there's this tension between the doc, between the Constitution as like a single document that should you know bind us to you know our our, our 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 original principles and you know the desires to maybe have things change. And so contrary to the originalist argument of a lot of legal conservative legal thinkers that, that everything must be in line with what the Constitution. I'm not doing it justice here, but. It, everything should be in line with what the constitution says and we should be you know very strict interpretations of the constitution um, as it was written versus maybe like the idea that the constitution is a totally living document and it totally changed with the times he's sort of trying to carve out a little bit of a mid a a middle path between those that suggests that there's a tension between those two things that actually you know in some ways the 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 magic of american government is that it's this constant act of working through that tension and working it out and that is how things should be but on that subject of middle path there are some kenyans back in school (laughs) kenyans back but on that subject of a middle path there are some aspects if you take a middle path of the constitution that should be preserved you know in in principle regardless of the sentiments and one of those would be you know you don't want to have 
one branch of government which dominates all the others. Right, in particular. If, if the here, majority yeah. preference is to have a dictatorial president, which, you know, completely disables the legislature and the court, the Constitution is not such a living document that you could say, oh, yeah, that's okay. Right. Right? There are certain principles which can't be violated, and that's probably one of them. And and to that to that end, you talk about how really we've lost that in certain ways, that checks and balances between the three branches as the as the court has basically gained so much power over our politics. Yes. And disabled the legislature in so many ways. And this is interesting because if you read the Federalist Papers, and this is what I want to talk about, if you read the Federalist Papers, they feared the legislative branch growing its power more than any other right more than the more than the executive more than the court because number of historical reasons relating largely to the english civil war that we don't need to get into but we could say that we've actually seen sort of the opposite of that in contemporary and modern american history that you've seen the growth of presidential power and the growth of the power of the court both from the legislature basically abdicating its power. Right. When the court strikes down legislation, they don't try to reassert the legislation revised and amended or whatever. They just say, okay, whatever. And in the early 2000s, you see a great deal of power surrendered by the legislature to President Bush in terms of war powers and things like mm-hmm. this. Because the legislature has had, has seen a risk-averse position to take in avoiding responsibility rather than undertaking responsibility. So right. you talk about how we need a legislature which is assertive of its power and responsibility. I just wonder, given the trends that we've seen, is that something that we can really expect to be possible? Yeah. So you're getting at an interesting point, and there's a very good book on that sort of on this problem in the, with the legislature. It's actually for the same. I read this. I read the the John Agresto book for for our American politics class at school, and this book was also signed in this class in that class. It's called Congress: The Electoral Connection by professor named david mayhew and his point is essentially there's kind of a free rider problem in the legislative branch that for any individual legislator that's one of his points that in the for any individual legislator because congress is so big there is you can kind of get away with less not, kindly than not I should. doing anything yeah or being a bit of a coward right yeah. because you because you can sort of duck away and you can blame others in the legislature for why when you go back to your constituents for re-election you can blame someone else and or, say or if you pass something and it gets turned down by the courts you can point your finger at the courts and say it wasn't me it wasn't i me. tried you right should still vote for right me. and so there's 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 a little bit of an incentive not to do anything and actually i mean this, it's very interesting because i think you see that in the federalist papers right as you noted the the founders were very concerned about an overweening legislature and so they put in all these these different little th- checks internal checks on the legislature like making it bicameral yeah. to to prevent the to prevent it from becoming too powerful maybe we could say that's just gone a little bit too far and has rendered the legislature a little bit overly sluggish i'm not you know i'm not saying we need to end bicameralism maybe but that they've that the legislature has become perhaps you know not not necessarily possessed of quite the same vigor or energy that you would want to see in the branch that that really was designed i think to be closest to the population just the engine of legislation and right. policy right which is right exactly and i think you're right in sort of your question which i think is, i think what your question is getting at is that it is going to be 
difficult to get legislators or, you know, the parties organized in the legislature, um, in the Senate and the House to sort of a step up. And what is the circumstance in which they would in order for any of the changes, the reforms that I discussed to happen, you'd have to have a very, I think, ultimately, unfortunately, unlikely situation develop where you have a party in power in, you know, Congress, for example, and a uh, Supreme Court dominated by the other party. So actually, that's what we have right now. But in just to take that, right, so say the Democrats want to pass some reforms for the, of the Supreme Court that empower them to do, you know, more work, maybe even like something I talked about jurisdiction stripping in, in the article, you would actually probably need to get, unless the Democrats wanted to abolish the filibuster, which it really looks like there's no chance of that happening. And I think on an issue like this, it's supremely unlikely that they would like nuke the filibuster for that. You would need a sort of bipartisan coalition to get together, I think, and say, and even just generally for it to be seen as legitimate by the American public, that it's not Congress really overstepping the bounds of its authority to sort of get together and say, we're going to pass these reforms together to sort of lower the stakes of the Supreme Court, disempower it a little bit, and, you know, engage in this sort of more dialogic process of mutual interpretation that I discussed in the article. And I don't foresee that happening, right? So you've got this issue one, the incentive structure for legislators is, I would say, as you correctly identify, Philip, not really there. And two, the extreme level of polarization that we're seeing suggests to me that it that it would be hard to put together a cross-partisan coalition, right? Agresto, when he's writing this book in the 1980s, is talking about how a lot of, you know, liberals, and by that he means people on the left of center of the political spectrum, are satisfied with the court's rulings, as anti-democratic as they may be, because they fall in line with their policy preferences. Today, for example, you might see, I mean, you might have even seen that right with Obergefell versus Hodges, the gay marriage decision. Today, with, you know, six conservative justices on the court, you might see people, the people on the left or the side of the political spectrum are are upset about the, that it, things are not going in line with their policy decision, whereas conservatives are going to be very happy with it. So I don't think you would get a conservative writing the same arguments that are endorsing the same arguments that John Agresto did today. It's unlikely. Maybe it's out there, but I suspect that it's it's unlikely, right? So, you know, those those partisan incentives don't 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 really align while you have the court in your corner. So that I think makes it very difficult. What under what circumstances could it happen? Well, we were talking about this before we before we sat down to chat. The tenor of American politics has increasingly become majoritarian, right? There's some emphasis on bipartisanship, right? You've seen that with you know Biden and these bipartisan the bipartisan infrastructure and all that. But I think increasingly the expectation is that most is that if major legislation is going to pass, really like like die hard party priorities, it's going to be passed on a party line basis. And so we may actually just reach a point where one political party has sufficient power to do what it wants. And because the parties are more evenly are, are much more strictly sorted than they were a while ago when, you know, when they were things I think were, there were conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans. Today, they become much more sorted. And that actually has given a lot of power, more power to party leaders who have the ability to really sort of have leverage over their sort of members of their different caucuses or something like that, right? So that maybe because of more strict party sorting and more people you know, more majority will major- actually do something rather yeah. than avoid responsibility right, because more- there's less electoral fear of being punished for for something that people don't like. Right. right. Because if the parties are well sorted, then you just it's a less risky proposition to actually get things done. Yeah. So maybe under those circumstances and I'm not saying it's like like a, like a purely good thing that the parties are more sorted. I tend to think that it is, but you know, maybe it's not. And there's as I right there's introducing right this this problem where if, you know, it's seen as like the Democrats, for example, if tomorrow 
they nuked the filibuster and said, all right, we're going to pass some sort of a statute that gives us, you know, an ability to engage more actively with the court if they strike down, for example, some parts of President Biden's big reconciliation package that pretty significantly expands the American welfare state. Say the, the court struck that down. I don't I, I don't know if there's any, I, don't, I doubt there's any cause to do so, but say it happened and then they, you know, sort of nuked the filibuster and, you know, made some and shifted things around and, and made new legislation that allowed them to have more oversight of the court. It would be seen as a very openly partisan move yeah. and seen as perhaps even illegitimate by the American public. I think that the Republicans, Democrats are in power right now, but if you want to go back to an insight that I wrote a couple days ago and a reflection we did a couple days ago, in the near future, I would, I would, the best guess for any observer of politics is that Republicans are going to be holding the cards pretty soon and election to election, they're going to win a lot more. And so I don't, I don't know why they, I, the incentives is probably just not there for them because yeah. they've got the, if you've got the courts in your back pocket, if you have, it's, 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 it's I, just, I don't think the incentive is there for them, which is very unfortunate because I think the, this is a, this is a pretty monumental problem in American politics. And it's only going to get worse because the legislature, as you note, has continued to abdicate its power. You're seeing a lot of instances of you wrote an insight about this a couple weeks ago about right sort of tiffs between the president and the and the and the Supreme Court. The president will sign an executive order. The Supreme Court will strike it down. Yeah. The president will sign another executive order. The Supreme Court's going to strike it down. We've seen a lot of battles that probably should be taking place in the legislature, taking place between the president and the Supreme Court. And so I think, in in all reality, it's 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 relatively unlikely that things are going to shift but that is not how politics this is not how politics in a constitutional democracy should function and don't don't be conned into thinking that it is <laughs> that's all for today if you enjoyed consider subscribing for new episodes of reflections and bird's eye from spectacles in conversation if you'd like to hear the new articles of focus and insight read aloud four days a week go ahead and follow the link in the show notes for Spectacles Out Loud. If you'd like to read or make a comment about the article that we're discussing today on this reflection, there will also be a link in the show notes for that, where you can also sign up for our newsletter if you haven't already. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you, guys.